Coming up next on Passion Struck. The thesis I want to offer is that actually the true source of both outer and inner success lie in anchoring ourselves in our core. That the more we go in this very sort of adventuresome pursuit of what is at my very core, who am I truly at my very core, and pull away from our false friends, the false pulls and demands on us, which wants to please others or indulge in myself, what have you. We go to the true source and the truth behind everything, our core. The more we start to feel increasingly true to ourselves from within. Welcome to Passion Struck. Hi, I'm your host, John R. Miles. And on the show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of the world's most inspiring people and turn their wisdom into practical advice for you and those around you. Our mission is to help you unlock the power of intentionality so that you can become the best version of yourself. If you're new to the show, I offer advice and answer listener questions on Fridays. We have long form interviews the rest of the week with guests ranging from astronauts to authors, CEOs, creators, innovators, scientists, military leaders, visionaries, and athletes. Now, let's go out there and become Passion Struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 326 of Passion Struck, consistently ranked by Apple as one of the top 10 most popular health podcasts and the number one alternative health podcast. And thank you to each and every one of you who come back weekly to listen and learn how to live better, be better, and impact the world. Passion Struck is now on syndicated radio on the AM FM 247 national broadcast. Catch us on your evening commute Monday and Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Links will be in the show notes. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for being here. Or you simply want to introduce this to a friend or a family member, we now have episode starter packs, which are collections of our fans' favorite episodes that we put into convenient topics that give any new listener a great way to get acclimated to everything we do here on the show. Either go to Spotify or passionstruck.com slash starter packs to get started. In case you missed it, last week I interviewed Amy Finkelstein, professor of economics at MIT and a MacArthur Fellow. We discuss her groundbreaking work on healthcare reform. I also interviewed Andre Solo, who is a co-founder of Sensitive Refuge and a co-author of the new book, Sensitive, where he reveals the hidden power of highly sensitive people in a world that can often be overwhelming and chaotic. The interview delves into a comprehensive understanding of sensitivity and highlights the unique strengths that sensitive individuals bring to the world. I also wanted to say thank you so much for your ratings and reviews. And if you love today's episode or either of those others that I mentioned, we would so appreciate you giving it a five-star rating and review and sharing it with your friends and families. I know we and our guests love to see comments and questions from our listeners. In today's episode, we have a very special guest, Hitendra Wadwa, author of the groundbreaking book, Inner Mastery, Outer Impact, How Your Five Core Energies Hold the Key to Success. I really love this interview with Hitendra, and we have so much in common on the importance of inner mastery in driving success in life. In our episode, Hitendra introduces a powerful framework for achieving success that starts from within, specifically focusing on what he calls one's inner core. Drawing from his extensive research, he reveals that each individual possesses five core energies, purpose, wisdom, growth, love, and self-realization. Understanding and developing these inner energies has a profound impact on how we define and attain external success. With his immensely popular personal leadership and success course at Columbia's Business School, Dr. Wadwa has guided countless individuals towards creating the conditions for both inner and outer success, fostering a harmonious alignment between the two. He brings forth invaluable insights on authenticity, leadership, and unlocking human potential. In today's interview, you will gain invaluable knowledge on the significant of inner work and how to incorporate it into your daily routine, exploring the power of silence and solitude and finding answers to challenging questions, cultivating an abundance of self-love and acceptance, as well as key steps to achieve enlightenment and how to apply them to leadership. Patandra is not only a professor at Columbia Business School, but also the founder of the Mentora Institute. With his extensive coaching experience with Fortune 100 C-suite executives and his role in teaching and transforming the lives of thousands of individuals worldwide, his insights are both practical and transformative. Join us on this enlightening journey as we delve into the depths of personal and leadership success. Get ready to tap into your inner core and unlock your true potential. Thank you for choosing Passion Struck and choosing me as your host and guide in your journey to creating an intentional life. Now, let that journey begin. I am so excited today to have Dr. Hitendra Wadwa on Passion Struck. Welcome, Hitendra. Thank you, John. It's great to be here with you and your listeners. Well, I have been lucky enough 
to travel to India many times. And I understand growing up in India, you spent a lot of your time partaking in what you call the sumptuous feast of spirit. And I wanted to ask, how did your family retreats and your father's spiritual bookshelf help you to create a routine at a young age of inner and outer routines? Wow, that's a really powerful punch which to start our conversation, John, and I'm deeply appreciative of you taking me back to that very formative period in my life. Yeah, look, part of it is that in India, the idea of enlightenment and transcendence and the afterlife and a higher power and the embrace of truth seeking is just like it's in the ether, it's in the air. You just like casually drop it in conversations and any kind of conversations in the classroom, in the executive arena, in the government, or just in a circle of friends. And so part of the sumptuous feasting of spirit in India is because you can't escape it. It's just everywhere. And what it does is just like engenders in perhaps people who are growing up there some kind of deep roots in an inner life which they may or may not nurture and water month upon month and year upon year. But it's something very real as a dimension to the Indian psyche. So I feel grateful and blessed. That was a, a key part of just like growing up. But then in addition, as you were saying, there were a couple of catalyzing influences in my case. One was that, yes, my father was a very curious man and he therefore had collected together a range of texts on the scriptures, sometimes the scriptures themselves, but often interpretations and understanding of the scriptures from different sources. And these would certainly relate to the Hindu scriptures, the religion of faith I grew up in. But Hinduism is a very open system kind of faith. It's a faith that takes a lot of curiosity and interest in, in a sense in every faith, because what they really teach you in Hinduism is the idea that uh, there are many paths up the mountaintop of enlightenment. And while there might be one end that we're all trying to reach to, that each of us is on our own path, is on our own journey. And so therefore, when that faith ends up interfacing with or encountering anybody from a faith that they haven't yet had any familiarity with, what it engenders in them is not as much desire to necessarily defend our faith or argue that one is better than the other or try to convert the other party, but more to be curious, to be invested, to be interested, to extract the crown jewels of that faith in terms of what are some best practices here in terms of the way you practice devotion, the way you practice prayer, the principles on the basis of which you have as a community really developed your life and all of that. And sometimes who are your prophets? Who are your saints? What are their stories? And wow, I'd like to embrace that in my world as well. But that was in a sense, the Hindu attitude like frame through which my father had fairly eclectic sort of books out there. And it really helped me just feed my own curiosity. I did dive into philosophy as well. I found it somewhat drier in nature. I found the deeper mystical kind of text to be more experiential, more immersive and something that was more fused between the individual and the universe. So that was one. And then the second, as you mentioned, were these retreats. And so when I was around 10 years old, my parents uh, both got very deeply invested in starting to more formalize their own truth-seeking journey. And they got very drawn to the teachings of Yogananda, who came to the United States in 1920 at the age of 27 to be a pioneer in the growth of yoga and teachings of that tradition of yoga into the Western world. And as he came here and set up an organization, it actually made its way back to India as well. And so my parents started to dive into some of his teachings, and I got very drawn to them as well, and to the ashrams, the retreats, and the monastics that he had cultivated over, over, over the years. I'm diving into them now in the 1970s of an organization that at that time was like 50 years old. But it became a very special escape for me, an escape from the humdrum and the distractions of modernity and the outer life to a place where I could really uh, pull back and examine for myself what are my deepest stirrings and think the true meaning of life is and what meant to do and be in this life. So yes, I'm, I'm super grateful for those very early wanderings, both uh, intellectually, but also just uh, physically and spiritually that uh, my parents helped and the culture of India helped engender. Well, I always enjoyed all my visits there and I was lucky enough to probably go to eight or nine different parts of the country. So I got to see a lot of it. And I was always struck by just how genuine and welcoming everyone always was towards me. I'm sure it was different because I was an executive and most of the people I was around were my service providers, but uh, I still um, cherish the times that I got to spend over there. Wow. Yeah, no, I'm grateful and thankful that you share that, John. India can be a little bit of a 
conundrum for many. It is highly diverse as a highly old culture and can be in some ways highly chaotic as well to the naked eye. I like to sometimes describe my journey as I was blessed to grow up in a land, India, which is very beautiful on the inside and can be sometimes quite messy on the outside. And then I come to America at the age of 21 to do graduate school and beyond my professional life as well, advanced. And I say, and then I come to this country, which is so very beautiful on the outside and can be sometimes a little bit messy on the inside. And so my goal in life has been really, how do you create a more whole humanity, a more whole civilization, a more whole world where the inner and outer beauties are just very intricately combined and connected with each other. And one is like the source and inspiration for the other. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things, and Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers... According to a recent survey, saying Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash PassionStruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash PassionStruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash PassionStruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to Passionstruck. Well, something you and I have in common is we both spent time in management consulting companies. Uh, you were with McKenzie, and I got my start with Booz & Co., and then ended up going to uh, Anderson Business Consulting. How did that experience shape your understanding of leadership and success? Because for me... Some of the core methodologies, as well as getting to work on a plethora of different company environments, has been instrumental, I think, to the foundation that propelled me to have success in my own career. Thank you for bringing that up. So first of all, I have to confess, and this is the first time I'm making a public confession of this, booze rejected me after the first interview. I had such a intellectually stimulating first interview with booze. But I obviously wasn't yet prepared to play the consulting game. But that rejection at that time taught me a big lesson. I doubled down on preparing myself even harder for consulting interviews. That was for a summer associate appointment. And so it took me a whole year before I was fully graduating and ready to do the fuller plunge into uh, consulting interviews. I have this, in some ways, very fond relationship with Booz because I remember how much of an important lesson it taught me and how stimulated I was in those early days from my first interview. But pained I was as well. And not being able to take it to the next level. So hats off to you for making it all the way through. I agree with you. I sometimes look at my years at McKinsey as not necessarily my most enjoyable, but they were definitely among my most valuable from the vantage point of the growth I went through. And I don't really at all blame the culture of McKinsey in any way for them not being the most enjoyable. I had a very confined and limiting set of attitudes in the early stages of my time at McKinsey that would make me assess and judge certain experiences through a lens that was confining. I would assume that you either were going to shine or you were going to fail. And the idea of learning your way into shining over a period of time was uh, something that I grew into over time through the apprenticeship system that McKinsey had that really rigorously gave you feedback and guided you and then held you accountable. And then over a period of time through iterations, you worked your way out of certain limited ways of thinking and doing and being to a more effective way of problem solving and communicating and teamsmanship, et cetera. That mindset change into much more of a growth mindset that I can be and develop and evolve into anything I want to be in terms of my capacity to engage with senior executives in industry on their hardest strategic problems and 
come not with a whole lot of background in that industry or in that function, but learn my way into logically pulling apart issues, mathematically almost figuring out the right information to collect and argumentation to develop and insights to generate and, and over time robust recommendations to build. And so the first learning was around the attitude shift. And the second learning for me was to repackage my mathematical mind. I had a passion for mathematics growing up and my bachelor's was in mathematics. And then my PhD was basically in quantitative business. And here I am now at McKinsey and I'm not seeing a whole lot of numbers all the time. There's a lot of circles and boxes and arrows and qualitative and strategic arguments and organization realities. And, and yes, every now and then there are numbers as well. But I had to recognize that I may have left mathematics, but that doesn't mean mathematics had to leave me. I could apply precision of thinking and pattern recognition and logical argumentation as much to qualitative data and behavioral issues as I had in the past applied to quantitative data. And once I opened myself up to that, which was not an easy journey for me, but very learning bridge, the floodgates opened and about a year and a half into my journey there, I started to really engage, really enjoy and continue to learn so much until I finally chose to leave because there were other things my heart was being drawn to. But I think, as you rightly said, I feel deeply grateful. And in some ways, it's been like a really indispensable foundation on which to build the rest of my career. You ended up spending some time in startups. You've now been teaching at Columbia Business School for around 20 years, but during your time teaching there, you came to an interesting discovery that what you and your peers were teaching at the Columbia Business School was how to lead everyone else, but you weren't teaching the students how to lead yourself. Can you discuss that journey and how you discovered it? It's a traditional, if you want to call it Western model of leadership, right? It's very much about, I have to assert power, I have to exude confidence, and I have to do my duty. And my duty is to inspire this team and turn it around in a moment of adversity and influence the key stakeholders and have hard-charging, difficult conversations and, and drive things forward. That's like the doing kind of heroes model of leadership. And so that's the way leadership has been approached and taught in business schools, just as anywhere else, as I'm sure you also have seen in your own career. And so what I was sensing is that for me, there was a deeply transformative journey that I had been on in my inner life, right from those early ages in my life that you had pointed to early in our conversation. And they had a huge imprint on my approach to situations, to people, to life's quests and all of that. And I somehow intuitively felt that that was going to be important for anybody who was going to be preparing for a role of uh, serious responsibility in society and in business and organizations. And yet that connective tissue wasn't there. The business logic wasn't there. The academic sort of like literature on it wasn't there. So about 18 years ago, I started to move my energy from just the teaching I was doing around strategy and marketing and traditional kind of business topics like that to a study of human nature. I looked at some of the timeless truths from the, the scriptures and the ages, which I had long been drawn to. But then I also sought to filter and repackage them through a scientific lens. And what was really nice is that over the last two decades in this century, we have had an explosion of understanding emerge on what it takes for human beings to flourish and what it takes for humans to be inspired from psychology and psychotherapy and behavioral economics and medicine, what have you. So I started to develop some meaningful relationships with some of the preeminent exponents in these disciplines, like Dr. David Burns from Stanford University, who's a cognitive behavior therapy guru, Dr. Dan Siegel from UCLA, who's a pioneer in integrating Buddhism, mindfulness, and neuroscience into psychotherapy. Carol Dweck from Stanford, who's the name around the growth mindset. So I started to build these partnerships with them, gain some mentorship from them, and started to integrate some of that latest science into the curriculum. I also thought it was very valuable to study like real lived stories and journeys in the history of humanity, people who've done extraordinary things like a Gandhi and Abraham Lincoln and Eleanor Roosevelt and uh, Mother Teresa and Mandela and uh, Steve Jobs and uh, Warren Buffett and others. And, uh, and sure enough, when I started to look at these individuals, I found that, oh, wow, they were in many ways validating what the scriptures have said, what it takes to live a good life and or what the latest science was showing. Scriptures, science and stories. Those were my three foundation blocks. 
And when I put this class together, I thought that it's going to be of interest to some small sliver of our MBA population at Columbia. Most of them will be just more interested in just going out and doing stuff. But I was pleasantly surprised to see what just tapping into some latent hunger that I, I noticed that this class did for our students at Columbia. There was just such a quick engagement and interest in this discipline. The class got oversubscribed fairly early and has continued to be over the years. And since then, in the last about 15 years, there has been more and more of this that has started to emerge. The importance of the inner life of an organization, of every individual, the, the pursuit of happiness and meaning and purpose, in addition to purely profits and performance on the outside, that CEOs and great cultures nurture if they, if they really want to create sustainable, meaningful enterprises. Uh, and so in some ways, it's not as like a mind-blowing kind of idea today, but I'm grateful that I've had the last odd 15 years to prepare myself for this moment because it's taken me that much time. I put something out there initially, but I evolved it. And I learned so much from my audiences, the MBA students and executives and doctors and others that I've had the privilege of teaching over the years, this material. And some of them will come back with their stories or push back at something and offer another idea or a thought. And so over the years, I've definitely come to a more and more maturing, complete, nuanced perspective on how it's not just about leading others. It's not just about leading yourself. It's ultimately a fusion of the two. It's a fusion of the two. And that fusion needs to be very organic. It's not simply, okay, I'm going to take classes around how to influence others and have difficult conversations and then take classes in how to find my purpose and manage my emotions. No, there's got to be one single integrative like energy that you activate from within and that you project on the outside and that then gets activated in the people around you. And that's what creates an organic, authentic, sustained, great team, a great culture, and perhaps even over time, a great nation. So it's been a very growth-rich journey for me. It's very evolutionary. I do feel at peace with the point I've reached when I wrote this book and in a mastery outer impact and finally had the final draft done and put in the hands of the publisher. I remember walking up and telling my wife, I think I can die in peace. And, <laughs> and the reason was is because it was like a 15-year journey. And I do feel now that while there is going to be so much more to do in the years ahead, that I've achieved at least like one very concrete first step in my understanding of leadership from the inside out. I'm glad you brought the book up, Inner Mastery, Outer Impact, because I wanted to ask, what inspired you to write it now? It's very much that story I was sharing of the year upon year of evolution that's happened in this model. I had a few publishers reach out to me early on when they heard about and learned about the success of my class and what have you, and this novel new way of looking at leadership from a much deeper inside out, almost like spiritual lens. But I wasn't really ready. There were things in it intuitively I felt were still incomplete and all of that. I felt myself get increasingly ready about three years ago. But uh, when I started to put pen on paper, I started to further shift into looking at the reader as my audience rather than the student in a classroom or the executive in a workshop. And I realized, look, this reader is not going to have a chance to ask clarifying questions or to push back at something because they've had a very different life experience from something I'm claiming. And so I better make sure that I write the book in a way that anticipates all of the confusion or hunger for more clarity on this or that may come up from the reader. And so I've sought to write it still in a conversational way as though the reader and I are having a conversation. But along the way, it took me that good part of two plus years to get to really feel like I sealed the deal in terms of offering something up where hopefully the reader will feel as though he or she and I are just sitting in the warm presence of each other rather than they're just reading something hardwired and written in a book. Well, I love that. And I was hoping so we could introduce the listeners to this concept. Can you explain what the inner core is? The inner core, yeah. So I'll explain it, but John, with, with your storied experience, both in the military and then in business and, and, and now in this field of like personal transformation, I, I'd love your thoughts on it. But let me begin by describing it for our listeners, as you've said. So what would happen is over the years as I was teaching this class, more and more students would come up to me and said, Professor, I'm really grateful because you're putting me in touch with my core. I feel like you're really helping me get to my core beliefs, really feeling that I'm more illuminated now about my core purpose and all of that. So I kept seeing this word core recur in their language first. 
And I realize that this inner light that I'm talking about, about character, about your intentions, your values, your emotions, your thoughts, that is a nice and unifying construct through which to view it, your inner core. And then a few other light bulbs went off in my head, which I'm going to come back to in a moment. But first, let me then define how I have sought to define the inner core now. And so the inner core is this space within you, within me, within each of us, from where our best self arises. When we're at that core, then we are beyond ego, we're beyond attachments, we're beyond insecurities. We can even transcend our own sort of habits and impulses to be like deeply committed to some kind of noble cause, calm and receptive to truth in whichever form it comes, curious and open to growth, not seeing ourselves as rigid and fixed permanently forever, very connected with the people around us and those we serve, and very centered in a joyful spirit within us so that when we show up in the world, we're really there to serve, to do our life's best work, not to feed some unhealthy, unfed hungers that we still have from within because our spirit is already being very nurtured because we're in touch with our core. And we drift towards our core and we drift out of it from time to time. And each of us can make up our own conclusion as to when it is in your career and your life you have felt closest to your core. And perhaps when you're taking that walk in the park or having a conversation with somebody really sees you for the purity of your heart or, or something. And, and then we drift away. And so... The whole quest in some ways for the pursuit of success in life is to deepen our relationship with our core and seek and strive as much as possible to be activating it and expressing it in everything we do. And then it doesn't matter what vocation we pursue, whether it's in uh, a creative arts or uh, in, in politics or in business or what have you, as long as we're in touch with our core and it's the source through which we are being guided and energized, then most likely good things will happen. So, yeah, what are your thoughts, John, on, the, on, on that idea? I'll start out by talking about Gretchen Rubin. I had Gretchen on the podcast twice now, but last year when I had her on the first time, we were talking about human nature, and I asked her what was the most important thing that she has discovered in all her years of studying human nature and happiness. And she said, knowing yourself is the key to unlocking the most bountiful, intentional life that you can possibly have. And I remember her telling me that and really deep diving for a few weeks on that whole concept, because I think for me, that whole idea of learning about yourself and its importance really started when I was at the Naval Academy. And it started because... I became aware of those leaders who were inspiring me, and I found that I was unconsciously starting to walk in their shoes. And I found that the leaders that inspired me the most, people like Admiral Stockdale, astronaut Wendy Lawrence, who is a professor of mine, were deeply rooted in a core belief in themselves and in their core values that they never strayed from. It was their power source. So really understanding that, I learned that if you want to become the best leader that you possibly could be, you had to learn how to first lead yourself before anyone was going to follow you. Yeah. And so it's something that I've been practicing with now for 30 years of my life. Sometimes, as you said, I have done it better than others. And I think it's a continual journey because we evolve. And as you and I talked about before you came on the show, I have had to reinvent myself so many times during my career. I think that those younger generations who are listening to us today are going to have to do it even more than I probably did, because I think this digital future we're walking into is going to force us to evolve in ways that we can't even comprehend right now. It's already happening around us. And ultimately, what I learned was that we as humans are the ultimate learning device. But it all starts with having confidence in yourself that you can take those steps to go where you want in life. So that's how I would answer your question. But I think this inner core is extremely important. And I wanted to just read something, if I could, from your book. And you write, 
It may seem that inner and outer success are doomed to be in conflict, that we must choose between them. The more we focus on getting other people's approval and pursuing success based on their rules, the less we feel true to ourselves. The more we pursue our own agenda and freely express ourselves, the less open we are to striking compromises to gain other people's support and the less worldly success we enjoy. And you brought up one of the people that you mentioned earlier, which is Warren Buffett, who put it this way, the big question about how people behave is whether they've got an inner scorecard or an outer scorecard. I believe the two can work hand in hand with each other. I think you do as well. What is the key to getting those to function in in an intertwined way? Yeah, yeah. Um, And Warren Buffett is a great example of that, right? Warren Buffett is a great example of that. Like here is a person who has resolved that conflict between the inner and the outer. He's been deeply authentic on his choices. For example, after graduating from Columbia Business School, he wanted to work in finance. He did not choose to stay in the capital of finance, New York City, but instead goes over to a Omaha, Nebraska, just because uh, that's where he had lived and he wished to continue to operate out of there. He's always dressed in very humble attire and driven very like humble cars and stayed in a very humble home and all of that. So all of those usual trappings that communicate to the world that, look, I'm take me seriously. I'm like super financially successful, just hasn't mattered to him. And so many more ways in which he's exuded an aura of authenticity in everything he's done. The pursuit of inner success has been so important to him. And yet he has done a lot of remarkable accomplishments on the outside. And so, yes, the journey that we make in the book is to actually make us aware that the only reason there is ever a disharmony, a conflict between your outer hungers and your inner hungers is if you make the wrong assumptions about what it takes to pursue the outer or to pursue the inner. If your belief is that on the outside, I better toe the line, I better just be focusing on pleasing people, and there are these 17 behaviors the experts have said that I need to master, and oh, they just became 21, or oh, these five just got eliminated, and these four got added, because now we're in a much more volatile world, or et cetera. If you're going to be just like getting yourself hit around by the latest shifts and changes and fashions of the day, it's just going to be really hard to pursue outer success from a very sustainable place within And similarly, on the inside, if your assumption is that I am authentic, I'm true to myself, and I can just indulge in every impulse, every desire, every addiction, every emotion, every thought and belief that I have, and that's my true self in the moment, well, then you may end up just painfully so in situations where today we see much of the world struggling with their mental health and with with drug addiction and and what have you. I mean, clearly, as the world has gotten more free in our Western society, it hasn't necessarily gotten to be happier in any way. The thesis I want to offer is the true source of both outer and inner success lie in anchoring ourselves in our core. The more we go in this very adventuresome pursuit of what, you know, is at my very core, who am I truly at my very core? and pull away from our false friends, the false pulls and demands on us, which wants to please others or indulge in myself, what have you, the true source and the truth behind everything, our core, the more we start to feel increasingly true to ourselves from within, but also somehow we show up in the world with more poise, with more grace, with more what I call inner charisma. And somehow that just draws the right people into our orbit. People are inspired by us. They want to hang out more with us. They trust us more. They see a certain integrity to what we're thinking and what we're saying and what we're doing and what we're feeling. And therefore, it creates the conditions where you don't have to chase out a success. It comes knocking on your own door. Well, I love that. And you have coached dozens of Fortune 500 C-suite executives. You've taught over 10,000 students about personal leadership and you and uh, other folks that are part of your mentora institute have also researched 1000 exemplary leadership moments for the top performers that you have seen across this field of people that i just brought up how do they bring intention into leadership moments i really love that intention is so core to your own thesis and model, because I've seen that to be the case that as an operational device, it can be the most transformational. So to me, what I see in these individuals is that 
there are situations that most of us, mere mortals, so to say, might have rejected just based on the surface of things. Look, this is an individual that I just don't get along with. Or clearly, when I express this bad news to this person that their group is being shut down, they'll be laid off, they're going to dislike me. They're going to be really unhappy when they walk out of this. Or you know, how can I motivate my team? Right, Our bonuses just got slashed. There, there's no financial reward. So, so clearly, people are just right now going to be very demotivated. So from time to time, we end up just rejecting possibilities in our situation. And in these thousand moments of exemplary leadership that my team and I have collected together and analyzed, a number of these are there in my book. They're from iconic heroes like a Mandela, but also just like everyday, everyday figures from just around us. What we find is that they were able to achieve breakthrough outcomes, breakthrough outcomes in situations like this, where you and I would have said, there's just no way Mandela can offer, can enter the office of the president of South Africa who hates him because Mandela is trying to bring down his government, the apartheid government. And there's no way that he can warm him up. There's no way he can get any concessions from him, etc. Or there's no way someone like a Mother Teresa who's a nun, hunchback, etc. can go to Harvard University and give a commencement address and have the students rising in rousing applause when she's delivering very hard messages to them about the kind of life that live versus what it is that maybe she wants to invite them to consider living. And yet they did that. They got those outcomes. To me, the critical, pivotal shift that starts them on this journey to breakthrough performance. Now, there are a few other things. I call them these energies and I call them these actions. But the critical first pivotal shift is positive intention. In other words, they look at these situations and they see positive opportunity, possibility, a way through which to perhaps open the process of discovery with this individual that they're in massive conflict with, a way to stir and warm the hearts, a way to deliver a hard message, but with a sense of deep caring for the individual and a sense of comfortable support for them, even while what they're hearing materially is not going to be a good outcome for them, etc. That notion of engaging in every interaction in every decision, on every day of your life, starting by first checking in and asking, what are my thoughts and feelings about this? And if you don't see yourself in a place where you have positive intention about it, where you're walking in without having just summarily rejected the possibilities of transformation, of growth, of understanding, of victory, of some kind of kinship being developed, even with, so to say, an enemy, if you're not being able to go in with a sense of possibility about that, 80% of the game is already lost. But if you can open yourself up to that intention, then from there on, yes, you have access to other kinds of tools and insights like these five core energies I talk about in my book that can help you to ultimately materialize that intention. Well, that's where I was going to take you next, because in order to achieve this attention, you say that there are these five energies that activate these luminaries and others. Can you explain what those five energies are? Yes, um, happy to. We, we usually think about assessing ourselves in terms of what we say and what we do, our behaviors and, and our speeches and all that. The notion of energy invites us to, in fact, start from a deeper place, which is what is the energy that I'm bringing into the room? What is the energy that I'm sensing from others in this room? Not as tangible. It's not just like the words I hear. It's the tone of their voice. It's the facial expressions with which I engage with people. It's just the core beliefs and thoughts that I'm bringing into the room. And so I've sought to find a way to create structure. I come from a math background. And so for me, the idea of structure was very important. And so I've sought to create a little structure to this otherwise fuzzy inner life. And that structure for me has been these five energies. The first of these is purpose, the idea of intentionality again, of why am I doing what I am doing? What is the noble intent, the noble cause that I'm seeking to serve through what is it that we are doing together, me individually or us collectively? And so that's the purpose energy. It fires people up. It takes them on a hero's journey. It directs their attention. It allows you to adapt and evolve as conditions change because you are anchored in that purpose on the inside and adaptive in the goals you set on the outside based on the constraints you face and the conditions you're exposed to. The Admiral Stockdale example is a tremendous one about how he was able to be in a Vietnam prisoner war camp and still still keep himself really grounded and mission-driven. So I'm glad you brought him up as one of your heroes. He is for me too. That's purpose. The, the second is wisdom. And wisdom is about 
recognizing that we may have good intentions on the outside, but as they say, the road to hell can be paved with good intentions. And, and the reason for that is sometimes we blur the truth. We get so caught up in a certain emotion or a certain blinding belief or a distorted thought that we cannot see how the other person is hinting or indicating or suggesting or hasn't spoken up or there are other facts that need to be brought to bear as well. And so we go down the wrong path and do the wrong things because our emotions or thoughts carried us in certain wild and crazy directions. And so the purpose energy is all about that discipline with which you stay calm, stay receptive to the truth in whichever form it comes. The third of these energies is growth. This notion that I'm an ever-expanding, ever-evolving self. There's no rigidity to who I am and where I've reached in life because regardless of how much success I've had and experience I've had and power I have, there's always more for me to evolve, listen, learn, adapt, apologize for the things I do wrong, experiment with new ways and reinvent my own sense of identity as I keep evolving and growing. As Mandela would say, he says, I'm not a saint because somebody asked him, like, how do you feel the fact that people think you're a saint? I think it was Oprah Winfrey. And he said, I'm not a saint unless you think of a saint as a sinner who never gave up. So thinking about ourselves as like those sinners who never give up. And so we keep evolving towards sainthood over time. The fourth of these fifth energies is love. And love is the connective tissue in the universe. It's, it's what sort of binds us together as families, as communities, as teams, as organizations, nations, as humanity today's generation with future generations and the past as well. And so, yeah, so love, I, I take it to be this energy through which you can take joy in other people's joy and find success in other people's success. And when you do that, then you just show up as a more human-centered, compassionate, empathetic, kind, developmentally oriented, caring kind of leader. So that's love. And then the last of these is self-realization. And self-realization is in some ways like, the catalyst for a lot of my kind of spiritual investigations over the years from that early age. And the invitation in self-realization is to find a more direct pathway through which to tap into your core, to get to your core. And what can for you be the intentional, conscious, most shortcut pathway towards your core? People are finding today in science that some of these contemplative practices from across the world, great faiths, whether it's um, deep devotional prayer or, or chanting, or affirmations, or a, uh, a mindfulness and meditation, that any or all of these are ways through which people report back a very conscious like elevation of their state of engagement with their spirit and their state of harmony with themselves from the inside. Um, and so self-realization is any or all of those practices that you carve out some time for yourself in the day so that um, when you activate that energy of self-realization, you just feel there's a castle around your heart and Nothing that is happening in the material world outside can ever impact it because it's always pure and it's, it's always present for you. Well, I love that. And thank you for going through those five, Hitendra. And so many of the things that you're talking about coincide with my own vision of what it means to have that inner self that's driving your decisions. Similar to many of the things that I wrote about in my upcoming book, which comes out in February. And one of the things I think we both agree on is whether you use your five energies or my methodology, et cetera, the most important thing that you need to have is action. Because I believe it's simple actions that activate these energies, especially interaction that end up becoming the building blocks of all the behavioral change that we want in our lives. And I think that's something that you agree with as well. Is that the main object of your book, are these actions? My book is to try to teach people how to create an intentional life. But I teach kind of six mindset shifts, six behavioral shifts that the luminaries similar to you that I studied go through. But I underpin the whole book in the third portion that none of it begins or ends unless you're taking continuous action. And I think that is something that I learned at an early age. People who are close to me who see me fail and see me have setbacks are like, how do you recover? How do you just keep going? And I've yeah. come to the realization that you're going to face those things. In fact, they're the most important things that happen to you. But if you sit there and dwell on them, what good is that going to be? So I choose to learn from them. And then I take actions from those learnings to propel where I want to go further in life and to use those, as I was saying, the building blocks 
of things that I need to change in myself to get me to where I want to go in life. And it's interesting because in both our books, we both use Abraham Lincoln as an example. And I have always been fascinated by him because it's interesting that people don't realize that for the vast majority of his life, he self-described himself as a piece of driftwood, just aimlessly going through life without intention, without finding that deep meaning. It fascinated me that when he finally found that life passion of his, he's such a great example of then what can happen when you deploy that and you become, as I would say, passion struck. What fascinated you about him and what are some key lessons that we can learn from Abraham Lincoln about his inner mastery and outer core journey? Yeah, no, thank you for sharing. Your book sounds fascinating and kudos for putting together this structure to really help because the truth is out there. It's today instantly accessible. You've got Google and now you're getting chat GPT and what have you. And while there's a lot of confusing muddled stuff out there, there's a lot of good stuff too. But I find that one of the greatest challenges of our time is just how to organize it and how to make it practical for people. And so obviously that's what you're doing so, so well. So that's great. Yeah, you're right. You pointed to one of my... Deep loves Abraham Lincoln, and I'm so glad that he has the same resonance with you as well. For me, like you said, the idea of this young boy who, in many ways, had some very humbling initial experiences in life and seemed to be drifting, right? The log cabin, kind of part of his story, losing his mother really young, his father being somebody he got estranged from very quickly, didn't really relate to him, wanted to do more studies and things, and there just wasn't much education around him. He had just one year of education. To go from there all the way to being a pioneering tree maker and change maker, but not just that, to do it from a place of deep attunement with his conscience, with his inner voice. And over time, a deep sense of surrender to whatever it is that some kind of master scriptwriter for the theater of the universe was wanting to manifest and having the clarity of mind to know when to push forward, when to pull back, when to pivot in a new direction, and when to pause. That is what inspires me most about him. He came to the brink of obscurity on a few different occasions when he failed to make it in a political race uh, or the other. And just a couple of years before, in fact, he was fighting for the presidential election. He had lost the senatorial race. And there he was to Stephen Douglas, recounting the time when Stephen Douglas and he used to know each other just in their youthful years in Illinois. And they would sit in the store owned by a friend of theirs and you talk about local politics and things. And then he was saying, look where Stephen Douglas's career has catapulted him. He's this very eminent, nationally known senator. And, and look where it's taken me because I'm, I'm like this nobody sitting here in Illinois. And that was about two years before circumstances and his own deep discipline preparation for the moment catapulted him into the national limelight. And he's now fighting for the Republican primaries. He's won the Republican primaries. He's fighting now with Stephen Douglas on the other side, defeats him. Here he is in the White House. And now Stephen Douglas, who out of the kindness of his heart, actually was holding his hat, holding his hat when he had his inauguration oath-taking and speech-making for the first time he entered the White House. And then actually... Stephen tried to cooperate and support him in, in what he was trying to do to keep the country united. And after having done what he could, he actually passed away a year from then. And so think back three years ago, Stephen's like star was shining so brightly and Lincoln was just wondering what happened to his life. And yet he just kept going and growing. And three years later, this is the outcome that happened. And yet that was still in the early stages of the Civil War. That war was still to be fought out on the grounds of America in painful ways and very loss intensive ways. And Lincoln had hard calls to make about letting a third son of a wailing mother who had already lost two of her sons to conscription and, and the war in the Union Army to also be conscripted, also be sent to war. But he was looking out for future generations. He was looking out for you and me and for the preservation of the Union and ultimately the dissolution of this very horrible institution of slavery. So what I see in him is a tremendous humility, tremendous sense of surrender, a tremendous persistence but also that attunement to knowing when to pause, they would push and pull. And ultimately, my most favorite story of his is how there came a day when he and his wife were a first lady, were going to go out into Washington, D.C. for a social event. And the White House security guard at that time there 
mentions the story. Later on, he said, every time they used to go, they would say to me, good night. But this one time, they were going out and they said goodbye. And I, I was confused. Why are they saying good, goodbye to me? He, Lincoln, why is the president saying goodbye to me? He would say goodnight often. And he said that was the night that he came back in a bullet-ridden body and he, he passed away. So the idea that he had this intuitive inkling as well, that perhaps his role in this theater of life had now come to an end, and it was time for him perhaps to move on to the afterlife, remains for me a very powerful testament to the invitation in some ways between the universe and us, that if we find our true purpose, if we live it from a very selfless place, from a sense of surrender, perhaps we can be at peace even when that moment comes, when we are being beckoned to the light beyond. Well, Hitendra, I love that explanation. And I wanted to ask you a follow-up to that. What is it that you have found gets in the way of us achieving both inner core and outer mastery? And how can we dissolve the boundaries between each? Yeah. Step one, I think we have no idea how much joy and love and peace resides at the very center of our being. That what we are searching for through material gain on the outside is already who we truly are in our identity on the inside. And that this hunger for outer love and outer wealth and outer power is merely just the soul in us searching for its own self. And so to me, the first thing that limits us is that people believe that they need to indulge in that food or in that drug or in that relationship or in that thing in order to have reassurance and peace and love and joy in their life. And they don't realize actually that's already a condition of the soul and those outer things are merely things that activate it, but they're not really it. And there are other more at times sustainable ways through which to pursue the it on the inside and then enjoy the pleasures that life gives us on the outside, but from a place of non-attachment and lack of insecurity. And so the first thing is you've got to believe then the next barrier that holds us back is that for those who actually do have that belief, feel like life is still long and there is a lot of years ahead for me to pursue these deeper kind of questions. And aging comes to us in such intangible ways, day upon day and year upon year, that we fool ourselves into assuming that we've got tons of time. Meanwhile, we just never know when we are going to die. And with every passing decade, in some ways, the potential for how much we can do with this temple, which is our body as a core asset, it starts to get more and more limited in the years ahead. And truth-seeking is a lifelong quest that any or all of us can take on. So the delusion that we have tons of time and we can wait for this to the point when we're like 75 and 80 and now we really cannot enjoy much of the pleasures of the world. So let me turn my attention inward. That to me is a barrier. And then the third barrier is just a lack of tools, a lack of a certain path, a dabbling that gets us to be in that search mode, but listen to a certain TED talk or read a certain book or go on a certain retreat and just keep dabbling as opposed to really intuitively ask yourself, who is a teacher, a teaching, a path that I, I feel like just deeply inspired and uplifted by? And I feel like I want to hitch my cart to that horse. And then just committedly, with repetition, with focus, start building some new habits, some new routines, some new rituals, have a certain community, have a certain language, a framework, a method, and make it your own. Make it your own for a period of time. Give it at least six months. Give it a year, regularly, every day. Put into practice the teachings of that path. Uh, and then if you do that, and if you don't get the results, go ahead and change and move in a new direction. But take some one thing and first make sure it's the right thing for you. It really deeply resonates with you. And if it does, then spend some time making it your own. Uh, so those are the three I, I would offer. Have this kind of aha inspired vision of who you truly are at your core. Be on fire to go in that search and that quest rather than think that you have decades ahead to do that and then find the right path. Well, Hitandra, thank you so much for sharing that. And I wanted to just tell the audience, I really love this book. And exactly as you pointed out earlier, I did find it to read as if you were just trying to have a conversation like we're having right now with each other. And the way it's organized is part one, he goes through something called the map. Part two, Hitandra goes into the journey in each one of these five energies, such as living with purpose versus leading with purpose, and brings in the examples of 
some of the people we've talked about before, such as Abraham Lincoln, Eleanor Roosevelt, Gandhi, etc., throughout them. And then part three, he goes into the destination and transcendence, which I'm a huge fan of. So I just wanted to give you an idea of how the book is organized, because I really think this is one the audience would love to pick up, and I highly encourage you to do so. And Hitandra, as I was reading this, one question came up to me in the book, and I think it really is the cornerstone question from the book, and that is, who is the most important hero we should have in our life? Yeah, I share the story in my book about one of my executive MBA students who was in his late 30s, early 40s, doing really well in private equity and how he shared very heartwarming and beautiful way with our class, how he really struggled with cancer when he was growing up and got healed from it when he was 14, went back to school, but it struck him again a year and a half later. And this time he just felt that he was on his knees and he just was giving up and he just didn't have it in him to keep fighting the fight again. And at that point, his mother, he says, came up to him and held his hand and said, my son, there's a story I've never shared with you about your father. I've told you so many stories about him. The only way you know about him is through stories because you never met him because he died before you were born. But I never shared this story with you. And there was this one day and it was my birthday and he came home very excited. He wanted to give me a very special surprise and a gift and takes me in the car 20 miles away. And it's a car dealership. And it's this car that he's going to buy for me. It's the car of my dreams. And he saved so much money to make that happen quietly without my knowledge over the years. And now this was the moment. And we bought the car, but then instead of driving two separate cars, we just wanted to drive together in our car, old car. And so we tethered the, the new car bumper to bumper behind with the chain. And as we were driving, he, he ended up pausing and stopping the car because the chain was getting a little loose. And as he got out to correct the chain, bang, this truck hit the back of the new car and he got crushed between the two cars and he, he died right there on the spot and, oh, and so the mother is telling this student of mine as he's a teenager trying to recover from his cancer and she's saying that in that moment she said i just lost all meaning for life i lost all motivation for life and i was on an impulse just going to open the passenger side door and just walk into the highway myself and invite life to take me also out just as it had taken my darling husband out and and she said but in that moment i i, I felt this kick in my womb and it was you, because I was expecting you at that time. And I just felt it was, I was just like, you were telling me like, hey, hey mom, don't do that. We, we've lost something really precious, your husband and my my father. And, and that, that's not going to be a loss that we'll ever recover from. And yet, on the other hand, we have each other and we have the rest of our life together. And we will make meaning out of it. We will find our strength and we will make this life still rewarding for us. And so don't do that. Don't take our life right now by, by going out there. And she said, that day, you were my hero and you turned it around for me. And there have been so many times over the course of these last 15 odd years that I've had you as my child, that you have been my hero. You've been the source of my strength and, and what have you. And, and then he looks at all of us, a student of mine who's now, like I said, in his late 30s, early 40s, when he's sharing the story. And he says, look, I want you all to know that we search for heroes on the outside, but we should search for the hero on the inside. Because just like I have been for my mother, you have been a hero for, for so many in, in your life too and continue to be. And he says, I got so aroused by that when my mother said that I started to fight the cancer again. And sure enough, a year later, I was finally back in school again. And I never looked back since. Cancer has never come back to me. And here I am living a healthy and very blessed life thus far and all of that. And and so this, this message from him, what look for the hero within, uh, I think is what I, I took away from that story, this idea that we all search for heroes. We want heroes. We share hero stories. We watch movies with heroes. Because when we engage with those stories and those heroes, we walk in their shoes. Their story becomes our story because it's inherent in this hunger is then each of our lives wanting to be a hero, wanting to be a hero. And we should be, rightfully so, because each of us has that capacity and the potential and invitation from life. And so, yeah, I think to me, the most important hero in, in my life as I, I know it must be, John, for you and your journey, and that for all of us should be, is the hero lying in waiting within, to waiting to be stirred, waiting to be taken in some kind of way by you on an invitation to go on some beautiful journey in our lives. Well, I love that story, and I love that we ended on it. Uh, Hitandra, if the audience would like to know more about you, where is this the best place for them to go to do so? Yeah, thank you. Certainly, I encourage you, if you can, to pick up the book, if you're so drawn to it. You're so kind in sharing the outline. There is my website, hitendra.com. So that's H-I-T-E-N-D-R-A 
com, which is where I have a newsletter that you can sign up for as well and certain articles that I already have offered for you. And then if any of you are interested in leadership and advancing that craft for yourself or others in your organization, then there is my institute called Mentora Institute. So that's M-E-N-T-O-R-A dot institute. And uh, I'm super grateful to you uh, for all you're doing, John. Wishing you well and the launch of your own book. Looking forward to more conversation. Thank you for having me and want to wish everyone here Godspeed and a great life. Well, Hatandra, it was certainly an honor to have you here and congratulations on this wonderful book. I'm so glad it's being introduced to the world. Thank you again for joining us here today. Yeah, very grateful. I thoroughly enjoyed that interview with Dr. Hitendra Wadwa, and I wanted to thank Hitendra, Brooke Craven, and Hachette Books for giving us the honor of having them appear on the show. Links to all things Hitendra will be in the show notes at passionstruck.com. Please use our website links if you purchase any of the books from the guests that we feature here on the show. All proceeds go to supporting the show. Advertiser deals and discount codes are in the show notes, and they're also in one convenient place at passionstruck.com slash deals. You can find this also on YouTube at John R. Miles and Passionstruck Clips, our clips channel. As I mentioned at the beginning, we are also on the AMFM 247 national broadcast. Tune in during your evening commute Monday and Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And I also wanted to tell you that I have a book coming out in February. Links will be in the show notes, and you can pre-order it now. You can find me on LinkedIn, where I post a weekly newsletter, or you can find me at John R. Miles on all the other social channels where I provide daily doses of inspiration, meaning hope and connection. You're about to hear a preview of the Passion Struck podcast I did with Cynthia Thurlow in her groundbreaking book, Intermittent Fasting Transformation. Cynthia unveils a game-changing approach to intermittent fasting that is specifically designed for women, but can also be used by male listeners. I think a lot of the confusion surrounding intermittent fasting is really just semantics. Some people think it means starvation. Others think that it represents this disordered pattern of eating. And I like to remind people that it's just eating less often. That's really as simple as it is. The fee for this show is that you share it with family or friends when you find something useful or interesting. If you found today's episode on working on your inner core interesting, then definitely share it with friends and family. The greatest compliment that you can give us is to share this show with those that you love and care about. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on the show so that you can live what you listen. Until next time, go out there and be become passion struck.